Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. Today on the show, we have Paul Kritzman. Paul is a cinematographer based in LA, and we had a wonderful conversation about his life at work, but also all the other things that he does to find joy and meaning in his life outside of work. On this episode, you'll hear about the magical world of working in the industry in LA and what it's actually like to work as a cinematographer, making all kinds of movies, documentaries, and telling different stories. I have no idea how this industry works. And Paul was really helpful in helping me to understand it and understand the different kind of jobs and roles that exist within it. We talk about what Paul actually does day to day as a cinematographer, why he likes it, and also how he got into it in the first place. We talk about Paul's advice for figuring out if a job in this creative industry is something that you might enjoy, if living in LA is like what we imagine from the movies or for something very different entirely. We talk about Paul's story of recently making a short film with his mates, what he's learned about finding purpose in life, and why Paul finds joy in hiking and the number one hike that he'd recommend to anybody. My vision for this podcast is to be able to have conversations with people from all kinds of backgrounds and life paths to hear their stories and learn about what their little slice of life looks like. And my hope is that this can help people either find inspiration or motivation for their own journey. And if nothing else, then hopefully you hear some good stories along the way. Now, my background is in pretty straighty 180 industries. So I worked at McKinsey and then I worked at tech startups. So I loved talking to somebody who works in a much more creative industry like what Paul does. It seems like a bit of a parallel universe to me to be living in LA, telling stories, shooting movies. It's like a scene at a la la land. And I loved being able to hear these stories from someone who actually lives that life. If you want more content, if you want to stay up to date with the podcast, you can follow me on socials, on Instagram. You can get me at the Two Roads Pod. And then on LinkedIn, just follow my personal profile, which is Steve Duke. But for now, I hope you enjoy my chat with Paul Kritzman. That's good. Shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us. Now we here, all right? Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My very first question is, when you were a little mm-hmm. kid, was there anything that you wanted to be when you grew up? Yes, and I wish it could happen. I was just listening to another person talk about this recently. I think we all have maybe that big goal and mine was to be the shortstop for the Yankees. I wanted to be Derek Jeter. And then when I realized I couldn't be Derek Jeter and I wanted to play with Derek Jeter, then I wanted to be a second baseman. So I was making double plays with Derek Jeter. That was kind of my, my goal. My baseball route did not work out, but it did lead me into like sports as being kind of an outlet for pursuing careers and stuff. But yeah, I wanted to don the, uh, the pinstripes for the Yankees. <laughs> it's very funny. The amount of people that I asked that question to and their answer is some version of mm-hmm. a sports star. Why do you think that is? Oh my gosh. You know, it, I don't know if it's a recent thing. I, I'm, I'm curious from you if like, if you've noticed a difference maybe in generation or age of people, but I know, you know, you've kind of focused on this age for the, the podcast. Like, I think about this all the time because my friends and I have conversations about who's the greatest LeBron or Michael Jordan when it comes to the basketball. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll say LeBron all day. Um, but it comes with a lot of caveats. Um, what MJ did and what he had the ability to do while like TV was exploding. Like those are my first memories for watching sports with my dad, like watching Michael Jordan 
and shooting on the basketball hoop outside and counting down three, two, one, and doing the jump shots. And I mean, we played a lot of sports, you know, we played baseball. Um, and I, one of my earliest memories is watching a world series game with my dad. And that's why I was a Yankees fan for baseball. And then even just watching like NASCAR was on TV and no one in my family really cares about NASCARs or, or motorsports. But I remember being a fan of Jeff Gordon. And it's like these huge people that were superstars because of the way TV was at the time, I think. And there's something prolific about that. You know, we have the Olympics only once every four years. We have the World Cup once only every four years. You know, Super Bowl and, and the World Series in the U.S. is like every year, but it's like such a big event. And so we really put these people on pedestals and we realize they're just playing a game. So it's like, well, I don't have to go to school for 12 years and become a lawyer or a doctor. I just have to play baseball really well. So I think as a child, it's very attainable in a weird way. Cause it's like, I just have to yeah. play long enough and like, duh, I'll be good. Cause my parents tell me I'm good and everyone thinks I'm good. And so eventually I just will be on TV. Um, and I think it takes for a lot of people if they're good enough physically to get to that level, high school or college where they go, Oh, like we're all really good. And there's only certain people who can make it to that next level. Um, and I think it's really fascinating what we hear in Olympians with their mental health. And they talk about the, the pressures that, you know, you don't think about. And then now what's your life outside of sports? And anyway, it's, it's, I think it's really fascinating. I think, I think we definitely create this, like, you know, TV has become such a big thing. Now you have like, I think kids now are growing up. I, I, I'm curious in like 20 years, I think people will say, I wanted to be a YouTuber because that's kind of the thing right now, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it's one of those things of like, what's kind of the big thing. And I think sports was kind of the, oh, here, we can put the kid in front of the TV. We know it's sports, like it won't be anything bad, you know? And now you have that with YouTube kids and all these things where it's like, it was just part of our growing up. Did, is that what you, were you a sports person? Like, did you want to be in sports? Is that? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. That's what I wanted to do. But it's very funny because your story is, um, I would say very similar to mine, even though I grew up on a completely <laughs> continent, which is like earliest memories based around, you know, watching sports with my dad, going to sports games, going out in the back garden, trying to like recreate, you know, whatever last minute game winning mm -hmm. score I'd just seen. And, and it would always change, right? So if it was like, if Wimbledon was on, we'd be at the back playing tennis. If, you know, the Masters was on, I would make like, a, I used to make like a mini <laughs> golf course in my back garden and like go around and like pretend I was Tiger Woods and try and, you know, sink put from on my <laughs> and the back. So like whatever it was, like I was just always like capsulated by it. And I just, I, I just used to dream. I remember going to like sporting games and myself, and my dad would always go super early, like an hour and a half before kickoff. We'd be like one of the first people like in the gate. And like, we would just watch all the players warming up. And I just remember thinking, it's like, this is this guy's job. <laughs> like he gets this stand out there and kick a rugby ball around he's getting paid for that i was like that's that's amazing mm -hmm. and i think you make a good point is like when you look at it as a kid you're kind of like you kind of do think like i can do that because you already play the sport <laughs> right. you know not as good <laughs> but as in our heads we are yeah. but you're like I, yeah and we're like we do that whereas like you look at like a doctor and it's like i i'm not already like some version mm -hmm. of a doctor 
Um, so I, I think I think that's a lot of it. And then it's just like, as you said, it's like it's what you're exposed to. Like if that's what you're watching, and this is kind of who your idols are, of course, that's what you're going to want to do. And if maybe if that shifts to you know YouTube, it definitely has, right? I think I've seen studies about what young people want to do today, and a lot of them want to be YouTube stars or creators or influencers of some description. So like I guess it makes sense. Whatever we're exposed to, we're probably going to want to do when we're mm-hmm. young. Um, but okay, let's fast forward a little bit. So you know, tell me a bit about what you what you do now. How do you describe what you do now? Yeah, so I live in Los Angeles. Um, I'm part of the industry, as people will say, uh, annoyingly. But uh, I do, so I'm a freelance cinematographer, uh, which is a lot of shooting, uh, lighting, um, and managing a department, which is kind of the part that I think a lot of people don't think is part of it um, or don't realize. They think, oh, I'm just good at shooting and lighting, so I can be a cinematographer. And there's way more to that. It's I've equated it recently to... Um, chefs so a lot of people uh, i've been watching the bear in different shows and and my mom loves cooking shows and there's this thing about like oh well cooking is just being able to make a really good dish and if you listen to any chefs they'll tell you like 20 percent of cooking is cooking and the rest is cleaning it's prepping it's writing recipes it's trying new things it's experimenting and there's way more and on top of that if you're on a big restaurant you're managing a staff you're managing the ingredients you're deciding where to source those things and that was a big thing for me when I moved to LA was learning oh like a cinematographer is not you kind of feel like a producer like you're like okay I got to figure out the wish list for the gear I got to figure out where to get it from where to get deals from like oh there's not a budget so I need to ask friends for favors or find people uh, who can do certain things or specialize in certain things. So um, the long story short is uh, lighting and camera manager in a way, but cinematographer and lighting films is kind of the uh, the short of it. And then I also am a local 600, which is the, the union here, the IATSE union. Um, so that's for camera. So I'm a first camera assistant for that. And then um, – I shoot videography, I call it, um, which is more of the run and gun one person crew kind of commercial gigs for real estates or uh, commercials or marketing companies or whatever it is. I know extremely little about, you know, quote unquote, the industry and like how it's set up and everything else. So um, I guess to help me understand a bit more about like how you fit into it and like what you are kind of actually doing. Um let's say somebody is like making a, a film or something. What are the different parts of that? And then where do you get brought in? And like, what's kind of the the job to be done from your perspective that they're like, Hey, we need X to be able to produce this overall thing. So that's why we go and get Paul. Mm-hmm. Cause Paul does, does X. Yeah. So it, that can vary a little bit on the style and where you are um, as far as the, the genre or the type, but uh, the the gist of it is someone decides they want to tell a story, whether that's a documentary or a reality project or a commercial. At the end of the day, it's all storytelling. So that person who wants to tell the story is either the director or the producer or the writer. But in some way, they're, they have an idea that they want to bring to fruition. So typically, if the money-saving technique is you do as many of the jobs as you can. But typically... Uh, if you have the story, you're probably going to direct it because it's your vision. So a lot of times you're looking for a producer who's going to help you find the resources, whether that's locations, uh, how to cast, how to um, source gear, uh, and then how to source other crew. And that's usually a line producer. 
Um, and then that's, again, this is ideal. A lot of people either come in and different routes, so they don't learn this exact, uh, process. But the idea is in my mind, best case scenario, you have an idea, you find someone who can help you start putting the pieces together. And then for a lot of people, that's when you bring in the cinematographer. Um, the other term for it is director of photography or DP. They are interchangeable. Uh, some people don't like the term old school DPs say there's only one director on set. Um, in today's world, anyone who shoots a video on YouTube will call themselves a DP. Uh, so there's a big range of what it really means. You know, like I used to say when I grew up, I played guitar, but I wasn't a guitarist because to me, John Mayer was a guitarist. And if you put us in the room, you wouldn't mistake who is what. But anyway, uh, the title, you know, I'm very title agnostic at this, this point in my career because um, a lot of times you end up doing a lot of things. But anyway, you bring on the director of photography and their goal is directing the photography. So you're coming in deciding, okay, how, what's the vision? You ask the director, you know, what are you trying to say? How do you see certain things? And then your job is translation. Okay. So they want this to be uh, crazy and wild. So like, how do we show that photographically? What type of camera bodies, what type of lenses, what type of lighting, what type of rigs uh, do we need? Um, and you're also hopefully if you're brought on early enough you're talking with the with the producer and with the writers and you're figuring out okay we have 17 locations but we don't have that many days so how can we is that location actually important or is like what's the important thing and so you start working with the director to really figure out okay you say you want one long shot you want what's called a one or a one take it's very common for people to say oh we just want to show this whole thing play out okay, well, why? Right. So my job is really asking why, why is it just cause it's cool? Which gimmicks are fine. Like I love gimmicks. Don't get me wrong. I'll do the camera trick all day. But to me, emotion is the most important thing. So if, if you're just trying to do the gimmick, then maybe that's more of an Instagram, TikTok, real something kind of thing. If you're really doing what's cinema, uh, a lot of the way people describe it is you're no longer taking a picture. You're making the picture. Um, so you're deciding what goes in, you're working with, you're not necessarily in charge of, but you're working with a production designer, hopefully who's deciding what color the curtains are, what color the furniture is. Um, and part of that process is explaining to them, we're using this type of lighting, this type of white balance, this type of, uh, either film stock or digital camera sensor, where it will render your production design differently. And you might come in here with black shelves and all of a sudden we're shooting in a way that it's not going to have any shape. So you just wasted all your time because it's going to be a black hole on screen, um, which one of the big tricks for curtains is instead of white curtains, because they usually blow out really fast is a lot of cinematographers uh, will lobby for light gray because then there's a little bit more texture to them. And the same thing, a lot of times anything that looks black on camera is either a light or a darker gray or a darker blue or something that has a little bit of pool to it. And part of that comes down to knowing the process at the end. Okay. So, after you film it, right? And that also includes what I'm talking about, wardrobe. You're talking about makeup um, because you can do makeup in one lighting, but then if they walk on set and it all looks different. So you got to also communicate that. You got to manage your teams here, managing your camera operators your who are also with your camera assistants and building this, the cameras and making sure all that works. You're working with your lighting team. So that includes your gaffer who's in charge of electrical and grip. And then your key grip who's in charge of all the safety of the rigs. And then a whole team of grips and electrics who are building all that. Um, and then 
you know, you have all these other departments as well. Like I said, you're a manager. And so that's where for a lot of people, you have videographers who are coming from mm. the YouTube world now or coming from this um, uh, sense of, oh, I can do everything on my own. So then they say, cool, well, you can you shoot this thing? And there's a lot of differences when you start to talk about, okay, this is a feature. Well, that means we're shooting it over 20 days. And we're also shooting it out of order because your locations are going to change and you're going to shoot it what's most efficient. So that means, can you make sure that your day two shot looks like your day 14 shot? And that matches the look of your day 12 shot and your day 25 shot. And all of that really creates what makes a really good cinematographer. That's where you're starting to talk about. That's not someone who does cinematography. It's not someone who is a cinematographer in my mind. What, what I'm realizing, like listening to you here is like the, the complexity of the process. It's like, there's so many different people required to create this output. And then you've got all of these very um, complex environments and situations that you need to account for as well. Right. It's like you could be on um, a certain location and if the weather's different, to what it was, as you said, on day two to day 12, like that creates a whole host of issues for you in terms of like how you're going to get those to match up. And it's like, you can't control the weather. So you've got to figure out how you're going to control things around it. And there's so many different people. And I think what I find interesting as well, I've only ever been involved with um, a couple of productions, but um, was that because of the nature of the industry and like how it all comes together, it's not like there's just one big company where there's, you know, one big boss and then that boss just organizes everybody else. It's like all these different people coming together from like different companies and different freelancers and they're all just expected to like knit in together. And, you know, a lot of the time it seems to work, but I guess that's also why then if you found somebody that you've worked with before and it went well, that's why you want to keep coming back and working with them again. Um, but I'm interested, like, um, what, what do you like about what you do in this world? comes down to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier as being a kid and learning how tough it was for me to sometimes to um, explain what was in my head. Uh, it took me a long time to realize I at least have ADHD tendencies um, that was never really identified as a, when I was younger. Um, and I think a lot of our <laughs> society is realizing that in general of how more prevalent that is. Um, but I've always been very intentional about uh, things I say or how they come across to other people. And, and sometimes I, I know I ramble a lot because I create a lot of context because for me, I'm like, Oh, well, this context is important for me to understand it. And it's not always, you know, the same for someone else. But for me, I love that. Like I can come up with a plan and I have the time and the resources hopefully. And then second, I put it onto the screen there's no way to say that's not what Paul is saying. You know, there's always little things you might hide. I love hiding Easter eggs and things I shoot and, um, or like just doing things for myself that I think are cool or whatever. But the overall vision, the overall story, like you can't watch Oppenheimer and not go, oh, I know what Christopher Nolan and Hoyt were trying to say in this specific moment because it's there. It's visually and even if you don't see it, it the pieces are there. Um, so I love, like, I, I just did a short with my friends, um, something we've been working on for a while. Uh, and it was over three days we ended up shooting and we had set it up in a way that we had about a three to four hour light at the beginning of the day. Meaning like, we're not like our first shot's not for about halfway through the day, which is 
kind of scary when you have all these people here and if something doesn't work out, all of a sudden you've just wasted half your day and everyone's like, what? And it's one of those things you get stressed and you're, you know, you, I, I put so much effort and thought into all these backup plans and we're putting it all together. And I'm sitting there like, Oh boy, like all these people are counting on me. And if I put up camera and it doesn't look the way we all expect it to, like, it's, it's just going to be the reality. And that's part of it too, is understanding that like, you have to challenge yourself. You have to tell yourself, here's how I want it to look and be realistic about how it actually looks. <laughs> so that the next time, um, I was just listening to an interview with Hoyt Vander, uh, I forget his last name, Hoyt Van Hatoma. Don't put that in. Uh, Hoyt from, from, uh, who's Christopher Nolan's current VP. And he was kind of talking about that. People were like, Oh, what's your favorite movie you've shot? He's like, oh, it's always the last one. Cause that's the one that like has been the culmination of everything else I've ever shot to get to this point. Um, and I agree with that. Like every time I, we put stuff in the festivals, you know, you don't hear about it for a year, a year and a half sometimes. And I was like, Oh, Paul, you like, it won an award or it won this nomination. Like, isn't that great? And I'm like, well, I'm like 15 videos past that, you know, uh, like I've shot so much more where it's cool. Like it's really appreciated. But so anyway, to answer your question, uh, we, on that shoot, we, we had everything going and I was like, Oh boy. All right. We got to get our first shot up. We got to like get the first shot, uh, and take, and it came up on screen. And I think I literally, I think that I have a BTS video of it. Cause I had a guy shooting for us and, and I was just like, Oh, all right. Yeah. I didn't expect it to look this great. We're ready to go. And it was just that moment of like, okay, like I wasn't wasting everyone's time. And that's kind of like, that's the moment I think for me that kind of keeps me going. You mentioned you like to play golf. It sounds like, or at least you do when you're younger a little bit. Uh, golf is a very frustrating sport. And I, but every now and then, like a couple times maybe per 18, I'll hit, you know, a nice pure shot. And that's what keeps me coming back. It's not every shot. Um, it's those tent poles, if you will. And so for me, it's like, I wish it was every day. It was super exciting, but it is work. You know, it, at, at a certain point you have to accept that things aren't going to be your, your hobby. And I don't agree with the enjoy what you do. You'll never work a day in your life. I've just never believed that because I think without work, you don't get results. And so I think there is work, but I think you can enjoy the work. So anyway, not to get up on the semantics of that, but um, it's those moments that I really enjoy is when you finally get to see it on screen and everyone's there and everyone's like offering their opinions. And it's not, you know, it's not a me thing. It's not like we spent these four hours and it was my shot on screen. It was the collaboration with my gaffer and with my grips and with uh, the well director sort of the actor who wrote it with me and, or who wrote it and that we did it together with. And it was like this culmination of stuff to go like, Oh, like I was able to be the one to finally like, put that together and have everyone see this. And when everyone's like, Oh yeah, it looks great. I don't ever take that as me being any good as much as it's just like, I was just translating what all of you wanted and somehow I put it together in the right pieces. Right. And I just made a cake out of it. And like, I, yeah. yeah. So anyway, there's, there's something so special about like sharing those wins with a mm -hmm. team though. And to come back to sports, it's like, I, when I was growing up, I played some solo sports uh, and some team sports. And when I started off, I thought that the solo sports, what would happen was when I won, I would feel amazing, even better than I did when I won, when I won a team sport, because I was like, this is all down to me. Like I can't share, 
you know, there's nobody else responsible for this. Like I was the one who achieved this. I won it. Um, but then I thought that when I would lose, it would be way <laughs> worse because I was like, I'm the only one responsible. Mm-hmm. I've lost. And what I found actually was that that wasn't the case really. What happens is what I found is like when you win with a team, you actually even feel better because there's some, there's something really amazingly satisfying about like sharing that with other people and knowing that you all contribute a little bit to it and it was tough and you had to go through things together. And then the same, like when you do is like when it doesn't turn out, it's like, it's not that you're turning around blaming other people, but at least you've got somebody to, you know, have a beer with and yeah. cry over it with, but, um, which is interesting. And, and I think, I think about that, that a lot actually with work is that like probably the times when I've been enjoying my work the most, it's not necessarily been, you know, that glamorous work or that if I was to look at like, what was I actually doing on that day? I don't think it was like particularly enjoyable, but I was doing it with a bunch of people who I really liked working with. We were going through something. We kind of had this vision that we were trying to get towards or, you know, this output that we were trying to create. And then when you get towards the end of it, it's like very, very satisfying to have gotten there. with Absolutely. The team. Uh, And I've always enjoyed those, those types of work. Um, yeah. But, but tell me more about the, this, um, this short that you were creating with it was this like a is this a you know a passion project was it kind of half work half play like um tell me the story about how you kind of went and, and did this thing so uh starting last year i want to say beginning of last year my friend hayden had had this idea of this uh mma kind of story uh he's a big fan of the show called um kingdom which was on direct tv it uh has uh, joe jonas in it it's very like raw. I could describe it kind of like Shameless or The Bear. It has that that documentary kind of fly on the wall feel. Um, and then obviously there's a movie called Southpaw as well. So these kind of inspired this idea of this these brothers that he wanted to write about. So he wanted to shoot something for his reel. And I said, well, why don't we just add a beginning and end and make it a little micro short uh, and see what happens with it. So we shot a little intro and outro. We went up on this mountain at like 5 a.m., and shot this cool training sequence and a quick little dialogue with the light rising over the mountain. Um, and then put it together, sent it to festivals and it started getting traction. We're like, Oh, maybe we should tell another part of the story. So we jumped ahead in his idea in the script to where it's more emotional and more of a dramatic scene. And we went to this really crappy motel room that we rented and we had to put stuff up on the walls. It was so bad of a motel that like they didn't even have anything there. We had to set dress how bad this motel was. Um, cause it was so bad that I was like, no one would believe this is real. And it was like, people paid to live here. Um, so anyway, we did that and then submitted that and that got a lot of traction as well. And to point of even one festival kind of did it as like a featured, did them together as a block. And we were like, Oh, okay. So like, let's really dive in and tell this story. Um, so Hayden and our friends, James and Tony started sitting down and writing the story um and wanted to find this like main part of it that would introduce the characters and kind of pitch it either as a feature or as like a series for tv but like an hbo like really diving deep into these characters so that's the long story of my friends wrote a script and then uh we got together we started looking at it um luckily because we're friends like we'll just talk about it over beer you know just hanging out like watching ufc fights um on pay-per-view like like, oh, this is what I want to do, or this is what I want to do. And so the pre-production was very kind of spread out and kind of part of our process we've learned has just become being friends and talking about it. Um, 
And so we got to the point where the script and like I said, they're actors. So they had been working on the characters and, and rehearsing it and trying to really tweak the script with what felt right when they would act it out. Um, and then let's see, when did we start I'm trying to remember? Cause I had, I forget when exactly it really started to come to fruition the last few months. Cause I had something that I was gone for, but anyway, point is uh we started talking about it breaking it down finally got kind of a mostly finalized script started going through it figuring out uh the style and the look with hayden um going through so he was kind of director writer actor version of this and then for me like uh for my part in my career i'm really focused on the management side of dping not that i think i've figured out all the lighting and camera Mm -hmm. but i feel comfortable enough of like adding in this extra element of where I need to show I can manage a crew and I need to show that I can get the ideas on the screen and I can manage a shoot day and I can do that with multiple personalities and perspectives. And so uh, we talked about budget and trying to figure out the best of what we could do as far as scraping some money together to hire some crew. Um, Cause you, you know, you can ask favors, uh, but at a certain point, it's hard to lock things down, especially in today's thing where a lot of people are not working in feature narrative right now, which means the jobs that will come up are commercial, which pay better and are more likely to get someone to not be able to come to set with you uh, for a passion project. So uh, we went from a f- hoping for a five day week. Once we realized the script was about going to be about 10 pages. So we usually go about a minute a page. We broke it down to, um, okay, like, can we do three or four pages a day and get it done in three or four days? And then we were able to change one of the locations in the script. So again, we were kind of doing the line producing ourselves of saying, how can we not spend all of our money and found, okay, like if we use this one location, we scouted and looked really good and had kind of different areas we could shoot and light to feel different places. How could we match that day up? And then also, combine a location to where we can do it in three days. And so we kind of got it down. Finally, we're like, we can do it in two really fast days or three relaxing days. And so a big passion of mine is making sure work hours are safe and enjoyable and hanging out with friends, not yelling at people to get stuff done unrealistically, which is unfortunately a big part of this industry. So yes. (laughs) Um, So a big part of what we did is, um, tried to break it down. Obviously we're not able to offer a great rate. Um, my big thing was like at least minimum wage. Uh, and then in a lot of union contracts, the stipulation for the lowest tiers are 125% of minimum wage. So I tried really hard to find a way to do that with a 10 hour day instead of a 12. Um, and then I had a lot of friends who messaged me and just said, Hey, I want to practice being an operator who's an AC instead usually. And they said, I'll come on for free. I'll bring my stuff as long as you let me operate. So that was great. Cause that, uh, one, they were great collaborators, collaborators of mine, great friends of mine who I highly respect and wanted there. Uh, but also they were trying something which would only be better for me. I love people trying new things because that's when you find the stuff that you weren't expecting before. Like, okay, like you're not just like, let me show up, operate the camera and leave. You're like, okay, I need to like, practice camera operating for a bigger gig so now you're trying things out which is only better for me when our short needs that extra edge um 
and a little bit more, you know, bigger risk, bigger return on the look sometimes. So finally started putting the crew together. We had gotten the locations. We went to locations, scouted those out, uh, negotiated those down the best we could for our budget. Um, and then I got really lucky. Um, I went, I was at a union meeting and at that meeting, it was being hosted at um, Cannon's headquarters here in Burbank. Um, and I was talking to someone who works there and because uh, we were basically shooting what would be considered a test or a proof of concept, um, they were able to work with us and we talked um, and kind of negotiated a little bit of a loan of gear to where that saved the bit of our budget to where I could better pay crew. So then we locked down the dates. We got the crew and did it. The first day we were right at our 10 hour mark. The second and third day we went short, which was great. So I got to wrap people early, which I always feel great about. Um, the second day uh, was like an hour or two early. So we ended up with about an eight hour day, but we just had worked really quick. And then the third day, we had to wait for sunset for our final shot, which is awesome shot of downtown Los Angeles in the background. So um, we kind of had an extra hour and a half in the middle of the day to pay everyone that day, uh, which everyone's like, oh, we're getting paid day off. Great. <laughs> and um, to hang out, like kind of debrief everyone like, hey, if you want to take photos and send them on social, like we'll I get to y'all kind of do that and then wrap everyone and then finish out our shot and go home and have some beer. <laughs> so there'll be people listening to this, right, who will be living in different places all over the world, um, maybe doing different types of jobs. So you might have like a teacher in Ireland or somebody who's working as like an accountant in Sydney. And the idea of working in, you know, a creative industry, like what you do in LA seems like, even when I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking of like a film or like movies that I've seen. Like it's very hard for me to to kind of think about this as like something real and tangible. That there's this like world of people out there. I just keep thinking of like La La Land or something when I <laughs> when I'm hearing um you talk about this. But you know, there's some people who might be really interested in in film or in storytelling or you know in photography or these different aspects. But like they're working in a very different. They're in a very different space, like in terms of what they do for work or just kind of where they find themselves. And But maybe they're thinking like, hey, I might like to do something like this for a job. I might actually not like to be a teacher anymore. Um, I might consider going over and doing something like this. And I think whenever I talk to people, the first question that they have is like, well, how do I really know that I'd like it? And it's not just something that I'm like romanticizing in my head or kind of that I've got this idea. So, you know, how might somebody know that this is a type of career that they should try out that they might enjoy? Uh, it's a great question because I think that's kind of the, it's both an easy answer and a tough answer. Uh, you know, it's a very much like you just have to try it. Um, when I, not to give too much unnecessary context and background, but uh, when I grew up, like we had talked about, I was big on sports and I said, I'm going to like, I'm going to be on ESPN. That was once I realized I could, I wasn't going to play baseball, I was like, well, I can talk about it. <laughs> so I was going to be that, that person. And then I started studying broadcast journalism because that's I had used cameras as when I was younger to make sketches for my church um, and for friends and family. And I was like, oh, that's, how, that's what people do with cameras is they shoot the news. So <laughs> I just started doing news. And I started doing sports. And it, that was up until college. And I started covering college sports. 
And while I was doing that, I got to go to the College World Series for baseball. I got to go to bowl games for college football. Um, I got to sit on the court for college basketball games, like everything that I thought I wanted at the time. And then I would have friends go, oh, that's so cool. You got to be there for that event. I was like, well, I didn't see it. I was working. And so I realized sports was always going to be my escape. Like sports being active has to be my escape. That's just that became a non-negotiable for me. And I went, okay, well, I guess I need to figure something else out. Um, And so while I was in that transition period, I was graduating and ended up getting a job as a news producer. Um, And in that time period, I was also changing my minor. And there's a lot of things where while I was working at our student TV station, I was doing a lot of stuff with our radio and our newspaper and our magazine and uh, managing the TV station, doing training and shooting all these different things. Someone was like, Paul, you do all this stuff. Like, what is it you actually want to do? And it had taken me a long time to kind of even put it to words, but I'd been fortunate to be put in a spot. I'd tried all this stuff and I was like, I love shooting and lighting it. If I could do that as a consultant, that's what I was called it. If I could be a lighting and camera consultant, that would be it. Like that would be awesome. Cause then I can turn it over. I can have someone else edit it. I can like work with them on the vision. And someone just goes, you, that's cinematography. And I looked it up. I didn't know. Like I was 20 at the time. And I had no idea this was even a job. So like you're saying, like La La Land is one of my favorite movies. I think I don't think I would have liked it as much if I had not lived in LA when I watched it for the first time, because it is such an epitome of the city. And at the same time, it's, it's doesn't seem real. It doesn't, it's such a bubble here. And so one thing I did in college is I trained a lot of people to shoot cameras. And one of my favorite things was like, people would say like, Oh, I need to learn this. I need to learn that. And I'd say, no, you don't. Here's a camera that you don't know how to use. Don't be worried about breaking it. Not physically, but like the settings, like just play with it, try different things, see a number on the screen, change it to something else and shoot something with it and see what happens. And I would make them do that. And I was like, I guarantee you it would be at this point wild. If you can bring this back and I can't reset it because also there's a reset button, but (laughs) Like I know what you did because I, that's how I learned. I grew up when I didn't know how the camera worked. So I had to figure it out. I didn't have Google at the time. I was just at the press at the cusp of Google. And then when I got to high school and I was using a camera, my teacher, I was like, what does this mean? She's like, I don't know, figure it out. So I would go, that's, then I did have Google and I started searching and learning about these things. And I started teaching the class. And then by the time I got to college and I was learning all this stuff, I would like, my professors would be like, oh, Paul knows about that. Let's have him teach this for the day. And so, and it wasn't anything that I was specially interested in except, or or, uh, especially talented in. It's just like when I grew up, my mom knew how computers work, which was unique. And if I did something and the computer stopped working, I had to figure out how to fix it before she got home. And so this like weird relationship with technology developed from a young age where I learned like you're not going to break it unless if your intention is good, like, and as long as you're not, you know, pouring water on it or like trying to snap something in half, like that's not how it breaks, you know, pending certain things. And obviously computers have gotten more dummy proof over the years, but that really set me up to where by the time I was in college and learning this, I would just send people off with cameras. I'm like, just try it. And then they would come back and go, I don't like that. Or I like this part of it. I don't like that. And it's that's how you really learn, I think. Um, and one of the other things I did, and I, I I need to do this more myself of recent of late because I'm starting to tell more stories that I'm not as used to or as part of the initial start 
um, initial writing, if you will, is I would tell people, okay, cool. You got your camera experience. You see why it's a fun little tool and gimmick. Don't take a camera, literally take a notepad and a pen and go do something you like. Like whether it's watching a volleyball on the beach or going to an open mic concert or whatever it is. And then write down what your eyes do. Because when you show up and you start seeing things, that's you're already ingesting a story. And that's going to affect how you tell that story back. And at the end of the day, what you're doing is telling stories. So I could argue video isn't even a job. Like there's, there's no that's not it. You know, I don't know if you've seen the new Barbie, but like your job isn't beach, right? Like, um, if you don't get the reference, when you guys watch Barbie, you'll all understand. But, um, that's Ken's job is apparently beach, just beach. Um, (laughs) your job is storytelling at the end of the day. So people ask all the time, how can this look so good? And I don't feel anything of it. And this looks like it was shot on a microwave and I am scared. Like, and we see this all the time. I love sending, I have all these shorts I've, I've saved or, or films that eventually got turned into these big major motion pictures and they don't do well, but they did well as a short when it was some, someone's terrible little camera, but because the heart was there and the storytelling was there. And that's whether it's actually Mm -hmm. shooting camera, becoming a cinematographer or learning that you like building a budget or you like putting together costumes and styling someone like What's crazy about this industry is it's not an industry. It's its own world. Like we need lawyers. We need doctors. Like we need medics on set. We need people who are going to license and figure out the licensing and contracts for people who are signing like actors. You got, you need makeup artists. You need stylers. Like people who build sets are like, you know, basically home builders. Like there's, and then you have, you need scientists to like write the actual formula, like in big bang theory, like they had a scientist who consulted and wrote, the actual formulas on the board. Yeah. Um, you have these people who are like so integral and it's, it's overwhelming. But at the end of the day, I think one thing that I kind of wrestled with was like moving to LA and seeing everyone's Instagram and everyone can shoot a pretty picture. And I used to teach people, like I, I teach people how to shoot a pretty picture. It's not hard. Like there are talented people who can do certain things better and who think of it. But at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. It's not, it's not surgery. Like there's a couple things that our brain thinks is pretty and is pleasing and you can learn it and do it. And that's obvious. Social media is so pretty right now. Mm. It's annoying. (laughs) So I was like, well, what makes me different? Like why I've had plenty of times where I'm like, ah, maybe I should just go be a lawyer. Like that's a big passion of mine too, is lawyer and terms of service and all these things. Or maybe I should just go find another job because like, what am I contributing? And the thing that I learned is like at the end of the day, not to get too meta or too uh, uh, like spiritual, if you will, but like your brain takes up a space and no one else can take up that space. And so your perspective, like I said, if you write that down in the notepad, like when you walk into a concert, is the first thing you see the lights or is the first thing you see the crowd or is the first thing you see the chairs like being knocked over with beer and like all those things are those establishing shots of a, of a film. And then what's the next thing you see, you know, you hear music, but are you looking at the speakers? Are you looking at the guitarists on the mic? Are you looking at the guitar? Are you looking at their feet tapping the rhythm? Are you watching them talk to the band members and you know, whatever conversation they're having, you know, like, and then, 
all those are pieces. And I, I think people will relate it sometimes like, okay, well, that's how you shoot a video. But again, like that's one way to shoot the video. And they say there's a video or a, a story you write, a story you shoot, and the story you edit. And it's never the same from start to finish. And it shouldn't be. Because if it's real and it's human and it's genuine, it should have that living genuineness to it, that breathe, that breath to it. Yeah. Um, so to go short on how to answer your question, if, if someone's wondering, like, do I want to do this? One, we've never been in a time where this was so accessible. <laughs> People think you need a certain camera, that you need a certain, even like certain features on a camera. And at the end of the day, like you could tell a story with stick figures on a piece of paper. Like I've seen stick figure animations that are better than some $200 million films. Because again, there was a story there and they knew what they were trying to say and they did the feedback loop. So to anyone who's curious or thinking like, oh, I want to be creative um, or try something, it's like, do it. Find something that is easily accessible to you. For some people, they don't even realize like their $1,200 iPhone is more expensive than the camera that someone else is using to shoot a short film you're watching. Like technically my iPhone is more expensive than my Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera. It's, it's silly. <laughs> um, you have the resources. And then on top of that, you just got to learn the pieces. You know, there's people who shoot tons of different things. And so I'd say, look at the content you consume and see how they do it and try to do it or find something you want to do on the weekend. Like, okay, you're going to your kid's soccer game. Try to shoot a couple clips, find a little program, whether it's iMovie or, you know, there's plenty of like free editing online or on apps on your phone. Try to just try it. See what happens. You put three clips together, upload it on Instagram and see what people say or show your friends. Like, what do you say? Because at the, I, um, we kind of met through black with no cream, uh, this creative community and there's a podcast and I, I'm hitting myself for not remembering the guy. Um, but Ben was talking with a special effects artist, I believe. And one of his comments that has always stuck with me is he said, the most important part of the loop, the feedback loop is the feedback. So you have to like conceive of something, do something and then finish it and show it to other people. And once you are showing it to other people, that's when you get the response. That's going to tell you how to do it again. So I think that's interesting, but often I get torn because um, it's often difficult to know when to listen to feedback or not, right? If you're purely trying to create something for where your only goal is like to satisfy a certain audience, then yeah, you should just listen to feedback all day and keep going until you iterate towards something that like everybody loves. But oftentimes that can lead you to conformity where it looks like everything else. Or else to a point where it's like, okay, you've made something everybody else loves, but you hate it. <laughs> and I don't think that's that's a good part ever. So how do you think about like balancing those two aspects? Because I think it's like, I don't know, I'm kind of torn between where I land on it. Well, part of that comes down to why you're doing it. Because I would argue if you learn the formula, that's a way better way to make a living. The people who shoot Lifetime movies have a way more consistent schedule than people who are trying to be the next Christopher Nolan because you have to take chances to be Christopher Nolan. Lifetime will fire you. Don't put, you know, Lifetime, I don't know your actual hiring policies, but like these companies that have a formula, they don't need someone to do something different. They know what works. And so they're not taking a chance. So there is a little bit of like, yeah, you can find the 
okay, that's the feedback loop. Cool. And it, there is a balance and it's hard. That's, I think the artist dilemma, right? Like, um, there's, there's a really good series online of interviews. I think it's at a college or something with, um, Ira Glass from This American Life. And he talks about uh, creativity and he talks about how it's a little more radio focused because that's who the the audience he's talking to. But he talks about how um, you have to have conviction and like what gets you into creativity is that is that what's called he calls it taste. You have a taste for what's good. So, you know, this is good. So I'm going to try to do that. And then you try it and it's not as good. And a lot of times people get discouraged because they can't make it as good. But what got you into it is the thing that's going to drive you to be better because you know it can be better. And it's loving the process. It's loving how do I get it to be so good. And that's part of like, I think that's a good sign um, of whether it's a hobby and maybe it's just something you do for fun, which is fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And when maybe there's something more there for you is when you start going, ah, so like I can, nah, I can do it better. And it's, it's hard. Right. And so I grew up, my dad's, um, was a martial artist and we're very big Bruce Lee fans. And one of Bruce Lee's things is like, it's ironic. There's a, there's a martial art named after and like modeled after the martial art that Bruce Lee practiced which is ironic because Bruce Lee specifically said he went and learned a bunch of different martial arts and then took the pieces. I forget his exact phrase. And it's something like take, take what is useful, discard what is not. He took the things that worked for him and he just, that's part of his tool belt. And then he tossed the rest out and then he went to another teacher and learned what was useful. And, and part of that's your conviction and your confidence. And that's only something you get through doing. So it's, it's kind of like a, catch 22, which is one of my favorite books, but is the idea that like, you have to do it to build it. And like early on, you won't necessarily know, like the Coen brothers talk about this, where when they started filming, they didn't know how to edit. They didn't know what they just realized like, Oh, if I, if I do it, it's called editing and camera. Right. So you just shoot it in order on camera. So they had tape and or film, I think it was tape for them, but I mean, it might've been film, but regardless, they, they just shot a short film and then would bring it and plug it up to the projector, the TV and play it back. And it worked because it was edited already. Right. And eventually they learned like, Oh, we don't have to do it that way. Like there's other ways you can do it, but they kept a lot of that, like going into their stuff. And so I love listening to interviews with them because they talk about how their collaboration with Roger Deakins and how those, those three guys like really just are such good storytellers. And you would think like, maybe they're like David Fincher, like David Fincher wants 99 takes sometimes, which is crazy. But the Coens are like, sometimes Roger as a DP, like cinematographers would love to do one take and move on. But sometimes things don't go right. And you need another take. And sometimes when the director's like, cool, that was good. Let's move on. You're like, Whoa, wait, (laughs) okay, I had confidence. I have that much confidence. Like, whoa, now slow down. And so the Coens are really, they storyboard a lot of stuff. They have a very specific plan and they just follow it. And they built such a artistic confidence that by the time they got to studios and the studios were like, okay, here's how it works. They go, no, 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 no. You're buying us. Like, this is how it works. And so the Coens are one of the few filmmakers who before they blew up as far as like Nolan size, 
they were able to basically dictate their terms because they were like, well, if you don't want us, we already have an audience. We already have our people who watch our films. Like, we don't really need you. You're, you're bringing us on to help you. So like, this is how we do it. And either that's how it works or it doesn't, which is hard. And so, you know, not everyone can do that, but what that comes down to is that artistic like confidence and that yeah. you have to build that. Right. So I think and that it comes from action as well. I think that's really, it's really interesting. And I think like that action helps you build your taste, but then also when you're talking about how do you figure out if something is for you, it's like, you can only really figure it out from action. And, you know, I, I kind of asked this question to a lot of people who come on the show. Cause I'm like, you know, some people might have ideas that this is what they want to do, but like, how do they actually know? And, you know, essentially the best answers are a version of just try it, find a mini way to go out and do this, like for an afternoon, for a weekend, no matter what it is, whether it's like, you know, wanting to be a cinematographer or like working, creating stories or whether it's, you know, um, being a personal trainer or being whatever else, it doesn't really matter at all. But like, just go out and try it. Cause the second you try it, you know, so much more, you learn so much more within like an afternoon of actually doing something than you will with like, you know, a month of thinking about it. Um, but I'm interested that, um, when it, you know, when we were talking about like, no matter what it is that you're making, it ultimately comes back to storytelling. What have you learned about storytelling? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Well, it kind of hurts me sometimes because I want the best gear. I want the best light. I want the newest lighting. I want the newest techniques. Um, but gimmick only really takes you so far. And like, it really is like, um, uh, it's, it, it, the, I think one of the struggles with answering that is because it really is something that has to be innate, it has to be like deep down in you. And I think, that's what's beautiful storytelling. Yeah. Because, you know, I could say all day what I might enjoy telling story wise and someone might not relate to that. And that's, what's great is like, you know, if you want the big fast cars going around blowing up, you have fast and furious. But if you want the more like relaxing, like, I don't know what I would call it without offending fans, but like more cute, like cutesy, artsy, independent, like you have like Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson or, or the Coens, or you want, you know, like, or you want documentaries, like you have Soderbergh and you have these, like these filmmakers who do that too. And, and we have such different types of storytelling. And so I think that's kind of one of the scariest things I always use. I still say this sometimes, like, it's hard enough behind the camera, like to be in front of the camera and be the one whose face is actually like so easy to target in the criticism. <laughs> and it might not, again, you like with how much goes into a film, I struggle so hard to ever call a film bad because I know everything that took to get to that point and everything that took to finish it, that like there's so many things that can go wrong that how can you call the whole thing bad when it's like that little thing is really what, you know, it's that one out of, out of note, but I guess for me, um, like stories have characters and I think character development's a big thing, like finding people we relate to. So for me, like I'm, I love quality time one-on-one with people. I love spending time and like feeling the energy and asking questions and, and learning about how they think, um, like for me, I like really witty and like, you kind of have to be in on the joke, but the filmmaker opens you up to that. Like, 
and you know, without it being heavy handed, like, again, this is one of those things where it's like, I can say all these kind of vague <laughs> notions of what a good story is to me, but like, I just saw Oppenheimer and uh, without giving any spoilers, like Christopher Nolan is someone who's at the top of his game right now, um, by far, obviously. And this film obviously has so much behind it from IMAX and kind of maintaining this film 70 millimeter camera that is one of like two people who ever use it in the world and the way he tells these certain stories. And it's interesting because I think if you, if you identify a type of story that you really like, I think that's when you can start to dive into, okay, well, what are they doing? Right. So Christopher Nolan, whether it's, um, Oppenheimer or Tenet or Dunkirk or Inception, he does such a good job of focusing in on a perspective. And I think that's really important. Um, And finding it's not about what's right or wrong. It's about what is this perspective and how, how can we relate to it? Right? Like what's that central question? Like, would I also do that if I was standing there, if I had the chance to push the button for the bomb and make it work so that the government has a weapon. Like at what point do I start to question what I'm doing? And when you start questioning yourself and what you would do in that situation, I think that really starts to pull at like a good story. Um, and I knew a little bit about Manhattan project and what was going into the, when I was going to the movie and I know Christopher Nolan's style and there were still things that like someone who's in film and of late have been noticing like myself being taken out of stuff because I do kind of notice certain things or like I start thinking about like, Oh, this is a really cool beat that they're doing. Like how'd they shoot this or how'd they like form this idea. And that happens more regularly, regularly than it used to, but I still get lost in these stories. And there were like moments at an Oppenheimer where certain things were said or the way that like, it just built up to like a moment that I was like, I felt it. Like, I just felt like, Oh, like what just happened there? And those are the things that to me, like, I wish I had a better answer, but it's like, those are the things I am trying to reverse engineer when I watch a movie and go, okay, so they did this. How did they do that? Because I I argue all the time. I used to be a Warner brothers tour guide as well. uh, When I first came out to LA as like the side money and you know, again, even that storytelling, like, and I had constant feedback. We gave three tours a day to 14 people at a time. And so immediately I would tell one story at the beginning of the day and have 14 immediate feedbacks of whether that was interesting or not, or whether they cared or whether they like just totally started ignoring me. And then I had that over and over. And I did that for three years of like this back, like just, okay. Like the way you talk and the way you say things like, and having that chance to repeat it and try it again and try it again and try it again. Um, it's really interesting. And one of the things on, the tour that was interesting was big bang theory was very uh, polarizing. Like either you loved it or you hated it because some people were just like, ah, it's a cheesy comedy. Like whatever it's on, it's a sitcom. It's easy, blah, blah, blah. And my rebuttal to that was like, regardless of how I felt about it, 17 million people were watching big bang theory in its last season. No show has ever done that. It was the second highest watched show on TV in America um after this is us like and this was in its 12th season or yeah not even like most shows after four or five seasons drop off to like just the bare fans and you had such a huge people and it's like regardless of what you think of the content 
the way they told stories, the way they approached the comedy, the way that they did it, there was something there. And if you can find stuff that even you don't like in that stuff and like use it for good, like I think that's that's whenever you know there's something special. And so again, I wish I had a better answer. I, I get lost because for me, I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's like I can work all day and do so much effort to get this awesome shot, but that cat video is going to do way better on social media. And there, you know, you got to think about con- like, that's the thing too, is people don't think about like it's, storytelling isn't just what the words or the images, where are they watching it? Like, what are they doing while they're watching it? Like who's around them? Like th- yeah. what else is going on in the world? Like there's certain times where it's just like, we don't want to talk about this thing because we're dealing with it in the real world, you know? It's that's a great point. I, I was thinking about that yesterday because um, I write a little bit, not often, but just kind of different essays and stuff on the blog. Um, and I think about the experience of somebody reading a blog post, and like it's either on their phone, mm. or maybe slightly better. You know, they might be looking at it on their laptop, but it's a very hard medium to actually to try and transport people into your story because like a distraction is just like one click or like one swipe away. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that it's like, you know, I'm, I'm reading that same story sitting in the same place that I, you know, do my work or that I talk to my friends or whatever else. And I'm like, that doesn't seem like a great medium to try and transport people into the story mm-hmm. that I'm trying to tell. And I think that's what, you know, what is great about going to the cinema is right. Like uh, we can get a lot of the movies now at home. We can just watch them at home. And like, that's awesome. But like what I really like about going to, going to a theater is that I'm in a new space and this space is like just for like consuming this story. And that's why mm-hmm. like I have a Kindle, but I never use it. I love like physical <laughs> books because I'm like, yeah. when I have my physical book, like it's just, it's just something feels nicer about it. And so it's not just, you could have the same story, exact same story, but um, somebody's consuming it through a different medium and it has actually a pretty big impact in terms mm-hmm. of like how they, how they experience it. I've got a couple of questions um, just before we finish up. Um, sure. I really enjoyed this conversation, but um, I'm interested to know, where do you get your sense of purpose in your life? Uh, I think that is by far one of the um, main cruxes of my and I think everyone, and maybe that's part of, you know, this podcast as well as the quarter life crisis is, uh, I was kind of talking to a friend because, um, there's science behind the fact that our executive function develops when we're around 25. And part of that development in our brains chemically is the realization of who we are in the world, but also how we affect those around us. And that starts to become scary, right? Cause like, I go on a lot of hiking trips. I love hiking. That's a great escape for me. We do a lot of big challenging hikes. Um, thanks to COVID, it was one of the few things open. So that was a big part of kind of my friend group and I going out and finding these places to be by ourselves. Um, but also with just, and um, just awe striking mountains and, and views and, and rivers and stuff. And, um, What's interesting is like when I'm on these hikes, sometimes there's things that maybe scare me (laughs) in a way that I see, you know, a 10 or 12 year old just scrambling along this rock. Like there's no worry in the world. And I'm like, you fall like it's over. And 
you don't have that concept when you're younger, you know, you're also lighter and more nimble. And, uh, but you don't have that idea of like, if I do something, it affects somebody else. And I'm not just the one being affected. And so I started riding a motorcycle a couple of years ago, uh, which is another source of this like thing I really love doing. And at the same time, uh, it's kind of scary. So my friend, um, in, the U.S. I don't know if it, this is across the world or not, but I know in the U.S. it's common with Harley Davidson drivers um, that your friend gifts you what's called a, a Gremlin bell or a road bell uh, for your bike, and you put it usually lower on your bike somewhere. A lot of bikes actually have a notch for it to be attached, and the idea is it keeps the road gremlins off, right? So it keeps you up on two wheels, like you know, one of those little superstition ritual things. I'm not big on those, but I, I love entertaining them. Um, I don't ride a Harley Davidson. I ride a small little sport bike, but um, one of my friends gave me one. Uh, and it's it's one of these things that like when I was learning to ride a bike, I'm very intentional. And I, I think a lot about my family and like they want me to come home. And so I had learned from this school that I was um, taking lessons from and stuff like I, I try to take lessons and practice like you know a lot of people don't practice their driving even though they should um it's something like oh i've been doing it so i'm good at it it's like that's not really how the road works but okay so i'll one of the rituals um especially on a motorcycle is a lot less time for you to zone out you can't really zone out like you need to be focused when you're riding and one of the things the instructor suggests um it's this thing called Champ U. It's through um, online. It's a school they do in person as well, but they also have online course. And one of the things they suggest is having a ritual, having something to center yourself. And you don't just use this at the beginning of a ride, but also like maybe in the middle of the ride, you know, you hit a bump and you get wobbly and you have to focus, like you have to finish the ride. You're still on the freeway. Like you still have to get out of it. Or like you swerve because someone almost hits you. You don't have time to like get mad. Like you, you got to get home. <laughs> And so one of the rituals is like figuring out a pre-ride ritual that helps you kind of zone in. Um, for some people, you know, it's closing their eyes and breathing um, or whatever. And one of my things I like to do is mine is on the back left of my motorcycle, my bell. And so I'll ring it as I'm getting on the bike. And it just kind of, and I start thinking about like my friend who gave it to me as well as my family and, and people I care about and that care about me and making sure that like, Hey, like, remember you can have a lot of fun on this thing, but like, What's the fun if I can't share it with them at the end of the day kind of thing. And so I think that's a long winded way to answer. Like for me, my purpose has always been about helping others. So like whether it's uh, in, like looking at working hours on set and making it safer or um, thinking about always, I'm always thinking about the next person. Like how is what I'm doing and I'm accepting whether if I accept a terrible rate for terrible hours well the next person they're going to say well paul agreed to it why won't you do it and i'm everything i'm doing is affecting others there's that right butterfly effect and the other day i actually read this little post that i thought was interesting it said that if you ever ask someone if they would go back in time most people would say they would, wouldn't change anything because they're so afraid of one little thing affecting the future but if you ask someone today one little thing if it would affect the future they don't think of it that way and i it, i was like man that just it really like set in me I was like man that's so like that's so much of what I'm always trying to tell people it's like I, I'm a also I was a runner in cross country um in, co in high school and I helped a lot of people learn to run and one of the 
things people would do is like, oh, okay, how far are we going to run? How long? And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to go run. This isn't a, like most people learn it as either a punishment or a sport. Like I'm going to teach you to run as like a meditation. Like we're just going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to gauge it. I'm in charge. Like, you know, we'll have a conversation. We'll talk. And whenever we finish, we finish. And people always go, Oh, I want to go run in the game with you. And it's like, it's cause it's like, it's learning to separate these things. Right. And so for a lot of people, it's like, Oh, like I don't have the time to go running four times a week. And I'm like, yeah, but if you run once a week for 10 minutes, like that's 52 times more that you ran that year than you did the year before. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's, it's these little changes, right? So a lot of my purpose, I think, is I, I find the purpose in helping others and, and making it better for the next person is, is always my goal, I think. Um, I grew up uh, in a way that we didn't have a lot. And that's something my dad and mom were really big about. It's like, even without much, like, what can we do to help the person that we're in the situation with? Um, and that's always been big for me because it's like, okay, I don't have something I can give you, but what can I give you? I can give you my time. I can give you my, my energy. I can give you my positivity, my smile, like my happiness. Like, you know, I can toss a ball with you. Like we can find a rock on the road and toss it. If we don't have a ball, like, you know, there's so many little things like playing catch is one of my favorite things. And so many people don't understand it. And I think it's because they don't know how to be with themselves. Like they don't know how to just sit and think. And so anyway, um, I think my purpose just always comes from being with another person and, and making it better for that person. And I don't know, maybe it's very Mr. Rogers or something, but hey, <laughs> I did grow up with is, him. This, so. <laughs> this is the great thing about this question, right? Is like, there's no wrong answers. Like it's, yeah. it's so individual. And if it's true for you, then it's true. Um, and I love your point actually about, um, that story you tell about like helping people to kind of learn how to run cross country, which is like, it's not about a certain time or a certain distance. It's about helping people to like enjoy the actual practice of it. And uh-huh. if you talk about people who like playing catch, I 100% myself and my brother, we went on a bit of a road trip at the start of this year and we had like this, um, it was actually like a cricket ball and (laughs) we had with us for like the entire thing. And one day we just like went to the beach and we stood in the water, like up to our (laughs) hips and we were just like throwing the ball. We would do this pretty much every day and we'd throw the ball back and forth. And then you're like, Hey, you reckon we can get like a hundred one arm throws like back and forth (laughs) without dropping it? And we were like, yeah, I bet you we can. And like, we got to a hundred and then we were like, 200 like, yeah let's do it that's <laughs> like, awesome yeah you know, to anybody sitting on the beach they're like this is two idiots like, standing there for like, 10 minutes are you like cheering every cool. time too you're like 100 and everyone's like what the heck? yeah exactly <laughs> and it's just like so pointless but it's great because like you're focused on i love these things like that's why i like driving as well i think driving i love driving because it requires enough focus that you know you can't just be um you can't be doing anything else right you can't be looking at your phone if you're driving or you can't be looking at your phone if you're playing catch, but um, you still have like enough space that you can like start to process things and like, mm-hmm. um, and it's almost like kind of a meditative state, which, which I love. And yeah, this, the, actually this little ball we were playing like last week and it finally broke and like oh, no. at the seams. So, um, but I was like, what a good way for it to go. It's like, it died, you know, doing what it loves. So yeah. <laughs> get, oh my like, gosh. The, the shell of it and, and frame it or something. Absolutely. So, I could see yeah. a really cool like art piece and like a shadow box where you have like yes. it all just kind of in there. Yeah. That'd be sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be awesome. So, um, I've got one more cool. question before we finish up. Okay. Um, cause I'm interested. You talk about, um, you talk about loving to hike and I want to know mm-hmm. if there was one hike 
in the whole world that you've done that you would recommend to somebody to do? What would it be? Okay. Uh, this is really tough. Um, my hiking is focused in the U.S. So anyone who listens to this, feel free to comment places I should go because I we're, our next thing is like we want to go international. It's just been easier because I live in L.A., Southern California, and we have within driving distance just so many amazing national parks. Um, and it's funny you say that because I, I, I want to give you two, actually. And the main one is the Grand Canyon. I think everyone agrees how great that is, but not even the Grand Canyon as much as a lot of people, and I'm not encouraging this National Park Service, if you're listening, um, to just do willy nilly, but uh, it's called going rim to rim in the Grand Canyon. Uh, So you can hike, technically there's a couple different versions of what that means. Uh, You you wouldn't necessarily do the real one in a day because it's so long. but you can go from one rim to the other. The real rim to rim means going from one side, north side, down to the south, up and back. And it's usually over a couple of days. Um, usually smart to camp at the bottom because you're climbing a, almost a mile in elevation. Um, but when we were there, we the north side was closed because of some uh, stuff with the weather and whatnot. So... We did a south rim to rim, which started on the eastern side. I forget. It's like, I think, high bob uh, side. And you come down that, and we went down at 4 a.m., all the way down to the Colorado River. You can't see the top of the Grand Canyon from the bottom. It's incredible. And then came back up all in a day. It does take a long It took us like eight or nine hours, which is kind of quick. We also go hiking a ton. Like At that point, we had been hiking and um, doing Telescope Peak and Death Valley and... Um, my friends did Mount Whitney last year, which is like a huge, probably one of the biggest you can do in the U.S. as far as challenge hikes um, in a day. I was in Alaska, unfortunately, for uh, a work thing, but I was supposed to do it. But we've done a ton of like really challenging hikes. So that's not something you just show up and do. But it's definitely something to think about and train for if you can. And, and the training doesn't have to be like going crazy because it is all downhill on the first and it's flat. And it's really the last seven miles up that are kind of crazy. But it's funny because my friends and I, every time we go on these hikes, we always go, okay, like, where does everything sit? So we just finished up a big 12 day or something hiking trip, uh, up the Pacific Northwest of the U S and saw some amazing views, some amazing summits. And it's always, like, okay, well, where does this one rank? Where does this one rank? Um, and it's funny cause every time we do a ranking, I forget to include the Grand Canyon and people will go, well, what about the Grand Canyon? You did that. Like, oh, well, Grand Canyon's its own world. Like, the thing is, it's not, it's just so different. It's such a different thing. And like, what's interesting to is Grand Canyon has so much traffic that the, if you're going for like, you want to feel like you're bushwhacking or you're going through these crazy trails, like that's not what it's going to feel like, but it is so magnificent. And we did it, like I said, started at sunrise, came down to this awesome sunrise view and then go all the way down by midday. We're coming back up. We finish and we had great beer and pizza that night and just like the whole environment we were in this little town off route 66 which is what cars is based off of so very like old small america uh feel and the whole environment but that also i would say if you're going to do something like that or even whatever the hike is you have to have a group of people to do with who are encouraging and who you really want to finish that challenge with there's nothing better we've been talking about this whole time but when you go from that individual, like I finished it to like, we did it. Like there's just something so much more magical about that. And so 
um, you know, encourage your friends like hiking is just walking on an angle. And it sounds funny to simplify it that way because do take your 10 essentials, like do get a day pack, do take a water bottle, like do understand some of the basic necessities to make sure you can get in and out. But my friends who have come with us on some of these trails who are newer to it, they're oh, I trained a little bit for this and I'll be good. But you're training for that one day. And to me, there's nothing better than setting yourself up for success by increasing how much you walk. Is your 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 normal grocery store is half a mile away? Like that's a pretty walkable thing to go do and come back in America. We don't walk a lot. I don't know in Australia necessarily how much y'all are, but it's hard for people in the U S to get to 5,000 steps, which to me is crazy. Cause that's like, I get that just walking around my apartment because of my craziness of walking around and being angsty and having to move. Um, and so just increase your walk count first and then start going on a couple with, you know, with Hills and see what happens. And, uh, I'm sure we, we really are excited to, to travel. Australia is obviously on our, I know there's not, similar challenge hikes i think in australia but it's a lot more backcountry a lot more uh, dangerous with the animals and the <laughs> scorpions this, and... this is this, this is true <laughs> yeah um but there's some really cool so, places i did a big road trip at this start of the year i drove kind of from coast to coast and like mm-hmm. i went to a lot of places that honestly i hadn't even heard of like weren't on my radar of like somewhere to go um but were like really really incredible but i think if you're really looking for great hiking and this is like on my bucket list the hikes are there's a lot of hikes that are in new zealand like that's where oh yeah and so i've spent a little bit of time there and we've done done some amazing hikes but it's like there's some ones there that are like you look at them like this this you know it's like la la land right it's like does this really (laughs) exist is this is this some sort of dreamland um and so they're the kind of ones that are on my bucket list and and actually you know not too bad for you to get to from la yeah you don't think about it yeah Cause it's like, you don't think about it on a flight. Technically. Yeah. Left. Yeah. I go left. On yeah. yeah. You, think, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, like the map ends, right. And so you think you got to go all the way across. The, the right. Map, yeah. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. You well, we don't want to make any flat earthers upset. If that, you know. Yes. Yes. This is true. This is true. <laughs> um, but listen, Paul, thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I learned so much about an industry that I knew very very little about and you've inspired me you've taught me some things so uh thank you so much thank you yeah i look forward to maybe uh maybe next time if i ever get to come down we'll we'll play some catch and have another good long combo so 100 <laughs> percent. i'm looking forward to maybe doing a hike and having a cold beer that tastes really nice at the end of it oh heck yeah <laughs> sounds good <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed that conversation that I just had with Paul Kritzman. I want to leave you with a quote that I read a couple of weeks ago. and I really, really liked it. It's one of those quotes that you read and then it, it, for me, it just struck a chord. And it's from a guy called Hunter S. Thompson. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, loudly proclaiming wow what a ride that's all for today's episodes i will see you back here next week for episode 27 of the two rows podcast shout out to my man's ADM. shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us now we here all right
Yeah,